coordinate many of the adult education programs at San Francisco Ballet. Tonight, it's my duty to introduce tonight's guest and to communicate some additional information. First, I'd like to welcome those of you in the audience to San Francisco Ballet's Program 3 Points of View Lecture held on Wednesday, February 25th, 2015 at the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco. As many of you know, these events are recorded for podcasting, and I encourage interested learners to visit the website and catch up on talks and interviews you were not able to attend or revisit talks you have already heard. And while you're there, you can also learn about other educational offerings, such as seeing ballet and talk about ballet. Additionally, please make note of the following. Tonight's presenter will leave a few minutes at the end of her presentation so that you can ask questions. If you'd like to ask a brief question, please line up behind the microphone placed in the center aisle. Speaking into the microphone will allow everyone to hear your question as well as capture it for the podcast. Also, at the conclusion of this evening's Points of View event, please use the exits to your right. If you are staying for the performance, have your tickets out and ready as they will be rechecked in the lobby. And now I'll introduce our speaker, Rebecca Groves. Rebecca M. Groves is a performance scholar and dramaturg curator living in San Francisco. She worked with William Forsyth from 2001 to 2007, first as a German Chancellor Fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation researching Forsyth's choreographic process, then as head dramaturg at Ballet Frankfurt, and later as executive director of the Forsyth Foundation in New York. She returned to the Bay Area to complete her PhD in, department, in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies at Stanford, writing on philosophical and dramaturgical approaches to contemporary performance practices. Rebecca earned her bachelor's and master's degree from Columbia University her academic research and critical writing has been published in Dance Research Journal, Modern Drama, New England Theater Journal, the Weimar Arts Festival Exib Exhibition Catalog, and the edited volume, Knowledge in Motion, Perspectives of Artistic and Scientific Research in Dance. She has taught contemporary European performance at Stanford and has given invited lectures and conference papers at the University of Paris Sorbonne the Free University Berlin, the National Dance Center Paris, UC Berkeley, Stanford, UC Santa Barbara, the University of Surrey at Roehampton, London, International Center for Theater Studies, Helsinki, and elsewhere. And now please welcome Rebecca Groves. Thank you so much, Cecilia and the San Francisco Ballet for the invitation to speak here tonight. And thanks to all of you for coming out early before the show to hear this lecture on William Forsyth's ballets about ballet. William Forsyth is a choreographer who has dedicated his career to redefining, to redefining the conceptual and, and disciplinary boundaries of ballet, specifically, and choreography more generally. His recent work has played a major role in the current reevaluation of choreography scope and has forged vital new conversations between dancers, architects, curators, musicologists, filmmakers, designers, neuroscientists, and philosophers. Forsyth has been widely celebrated for revitalizing what many modern and contemporary dance artists and audiences had dismissed as the ossified idiom of ballet by asking how it might be spoken as a living and still evolving physical language. 
how it might voice contemporary concerns instead of merely reiterating aesthetic dogmas of the 19th century. For 20 years with the Ballet Frankfurt, followed by a decade with the Forsyth Company, he has systematically set about disentangling ballet's physical mechanics and the cultural forms of romanticism from which they emerged. Forsyth has had a long history working with the San Francisco Ballet. Starting in 1987, when Helgi Thomason commissioned him to create a new work with San Francisco dancers, which became New Sleep. Here they are in rehearsal. Two years later, Forsyth licensed the San Francisco Ballet to perform In the Middle Somewhat Elevated in 1989. The American premiere of the vertiginous thrill of exactitude in 1998. And Artifact Suite in 2006. Forsyth is extremely selective about which companies he collaborates with on making new works and which he allows to perform existing ballets in his repertoire. And luckily for us in the, here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Ballet has proven to be one of the best places in the world to encounter William Forsyth's work outside of his own company. Forsyth's champions count him amongst the greatest artists of our time for fundamentally questioning the supposed precepts of his own medium he is extolled as a visionary artist of the classical tradition, a contemporary Nijinsky who has advanced the art form at least as far as those modern and postmodern choreographers who gave up on ballet altogether. He has won innumerable awards and accolades, which you can find nicely detailed in the program notes for this evening's performance. But in spite of Forsyth's international acclaim, and more, most importantly, the exuberant audience engagement that has followed his career for four decades, Forsyth has also long been a target of criticism and anti-intellectual sentiment, especially in the United States and the UK. Reactionary critics have heaped language so excoriating as to be amusing upon the aesthetic affronts they perceive in Forsyth's most innovative work. His theoretically savvy iconoclasm has been derided as pretentious incomprehensible, and European. Even 17 years after Artifact premiered, the grammatical wordplay spoken by the dancers on stage could still incite the churlish headline in the British press, if only they'd shut up and dance. For those who only associate ballet with striving to refine and perfect a classicized ideal, Forsyth's search for alternative methodologies and outcomes can still come across as nothing less than the wanton disregard and dissolution of the grand tradition. One way of making sense of the disagreements that still arise to, to this day between Forsyth's advocates and his detractors would be simply to chalk it up to a difference in taste. One thing we can all agree upon is that Forsyth's work demonstrates that there is a very wide range of opinions about what a successful ballet is. Variance in taste preferences can certainly account for a lot. However, I'd like to suggest to you another way of looking at it that might give us more to talk about 
and more insight into what Forsyth has been up to all these years. And that would be to think for a moment of ballet not only as an object of aesthetic appreciation, but as a concept, a category, a subject of inquiry. When we think of ballet as a concept, we can then start to ask the kind of questions we're used to asking of any idea or subject matter. What is it? What is it about? What can it do? What else does it relate to? Perhaps the real controversy comes down to not merely differences in matters of taste, but amounts to the difference between expecting something to live up to our most cherished conclusions versus asking questions about what we don't already know. Between desiring to see a performance that will realize an already fully imagined and sanctioned ideal and encountering a work that sets out to find out what else might be possible or desirable under the conditions of our current moment in history. The first piece Forsyth created with Ballet Frankfurt in 1983, the year before he took over the company as artistic director, was called Gänge, Ein Stück über Ballett, which in English translates as Steps, a piece about ballet. He's also referred to many of his other neoclassical works, such as Artifact and the vertiginous thrill of exactitude, as being ballets about ballet. But what does that mean for a ballet to be about ballet? How can a work of choreography take up and investigate ballet as its subject matter? We don't often think about how we recognize a work of choreography as a ballet, as it generally seems to be entirely self-evident. We expect a ballet to clearly exhibit a certain set of traditions, practices, and aesthetics that, have been, that we have learned through experience to identify with the name ballet. And part of why this is usually so straightforward is that one of the defining characteristics of ballet has been to be instantly legible and unambiguous. But if a ballet of work set out to investigate the idea of ballet as a historical category, we might find that things end up looking quite different. By taking up ballet as a set of functioning assumptions instead of eternal certainties, Forsyth recast ballet from a mutable doctrine to an available subject of inquiry. In daring to propose that ballet can be approached most productively as a conceptual and historical category worth investigating, Forsyth approach, approaches movement as a question, rather than as the preordained solution to the problem of how to go about dancing. Since such early works as Ganga and Artifact, Forsyth has continued to examine how ballet's organizing principles, coordinative geometries, and perceptual habits might be dissected, exposed to parallel ideas in other disciplines, and recombined to produce new states, forms, and configurations of knowledge. He has expanded and diversified ballet's scope while maintaining the integrity of its logic, if not all of its assumptions. As contemporary British choreographer Jonathan Burroughs puts it, Forsyth rearranged all of the furniture whilst leaving the room recognizable. Before elaborating on how Forsyth goes about doing all of this, I want to pause here a moment to ask, well, aren't all ballets necessarily about ballet? 
it seems that there are a couple different ways that ballet can be understood as a self-reflexive practice, as being about itself. In the traditional aesthetic sense, one could say that ballet is about the achievement in performance of class, ideal classical forms as defined by strict institutionalized criteria. In this sense, any ballet can be seen as a drama about its own virtuosity. In matters of virtuosity, what is generally at stake is determining how well does a given performance realize the extremely demanding and elusive but clearly well-established aesthetic standards of ballet. The performance here is the question. For those of us in the audience, we arrive already invested in seeing if the performance will live up to the highest ideals of the discipline. On the other hand, a ballet can be about ballet in a very different sense, by asking questions about how the art form has functioned as a complex system that has evolved over time from the training of dancers, to the aesthetic development of classical forms and ideals, to the politics of the kinds of stories that ballet has been suited to tell, to the institutional organization of ballet companies, and the architecture of opera houses and proscenium stages. Thinking of ballet as having an evolving history, like any other art form, reminds us that it was not always taught in highly professional ballet schools nor performed by municipal ballet companies, nor did it look the way it does now. And just as what counted as ballet has changed over the course of its history, it seems logical to expect that it will continue to evolve in the future. From this point of view, the question arises quite naturally. How might the inherited tradition be channeled to inspire new ways of working and new modes of presentation that build upon ballet's incredible store of disciplinary knowledge. What qualities and practices of ballet might be due for revision in order to engage with contemporary forms of life? One way of taking these questions seriously would be to prioritize physical rigor, oh, excuse me, physical rigor of the discipline over its aesthetic appearance which is not at all to say that the aesthetic results don't matter, but that they're just not determined in advance. The conditions are created under which we can be surprised by what emerges, which can be a very rewarding experience. The point of the work is to discover new procedures and forms that are made possible by rigorous classical training and a deep engagement with balletic principles, but that aren't required to look like the past, or to reproduce the conventions of a bygone era. The classical aesthetic aims at producing an illusion of effortlessness and grace, not so that we can't apprehend the difficulty involved, but so that we can be awed by witnessing dancers overcome it. It is designed to obscure the forces at work rather than to expose them to scrutiny and analysis. But for a ballet to question its own practice, it must reveal how the apparatus works, as well as try out alternatives that had been unthinkable under the received model. So for Forsyth, an important part of reconceiving ballet as a subject in and of itself entails investigating it as intellectual, physical, and creative work. And work is that very same quality which the aesthetics, if not the practice, of classical ballet most fervently 
disavows. While classical ballet's extremely demanding training, exacting work ethic, and hierarchical teaching and employment practices feed public fascination with the genre, the aesthetic codes of virtuosity in ballet, ballet performance serve to obscure the real effort and to naturalize social and professional stratifications. Forsyth, by contrast, seriously grapples with existential and ethical questions about how to work, as well as with the practical challenges of how to make the work of dance and choreography visible. Problems of work, such as what counts as work, who does it and with whom, what kinds of knowledge it draws upon and generates, how it functions, how it might lead to consequential outcomes, and how to recognize it, have been central themes in his stage performances, such as the questioning of Robert Scott, performance installations such as Human Rights and You Made Me a Monster, as well as in Forsyth's choreographic objects in public spaces, including City of Abstracts and Instructions. Similarly, Forsyth's award-winning pedagogical CD-ROM, Improvisation Technologies, aim to explain and demonstrate the Ballet Frankfurt's working methods for improvising, while his later Synchronous Objects project created an online digital score to visualize the choreographic workings of the performance piece, One Flat Thing Reproduced, by mapping, indexing, and diagramming its cues, movement themes, alignments, and organizational structures. In a recent acceptance speech for the Golden Lion Award at the 2010 Venice Biennale, Forsyth composed and shared with the audience a list of big questions, which he modestly introduced as questions that come up sometimes over the course of making choreographic work. These questions are remarkable in the way in which they so clearly suggest how philosophical problems and ideas have everything to do with how ballet is practiced and enjoyed in the classroom, the rehearsal studio, on stage, and in the audience. As someone who worked with Forsyth for many years, I can assure you that these questions are not at all merely rhetorical. They are very practical concerns. Forsyth asks, what can we in dance provide for civilization? Is dancing a process of civilization? Does it civilize? What allows us to believe there are or there were proper ways to do things? How do we know? How do we go about knowing? How does one formulate relevant questions? How effectively can I doubt my own convictions? Do I really believe what I believe? Are my assumptions dependable? What is there to know about dancing, about choreography? How should we set about finding out? Why is there resistance to the possibility of change, change of belief or of conclusions? What kind of social organization is a dance ensemble? What kind of political organization is a dance ensemble? How does one con conduct oneself in a position of power? What is a respectful work environment? 
What is a radical understanding of the word work? And why is it so important in our environment to understand deeply what work means? And the list goes on. So you can see that it is not a stretch to insist that for Forsyth, choreography is first and foremost a practice driven by the organization of ideas, not only a product defined by the performance of dancing bodies. To the extent that the organization of ideas involves perceiving similarities and differences, detecting new patterns of coherence, and transforming experience, the work of choreography can be seen as a practice of learning and knowledge formation. Taking ballet or choreography as a subject of inquiry and the impetus to work requires engaging in research, analysis, and creative thinking. Forsyth's alignment of choreography with the organization of thought has to do not only with constructing and coordinating new relationships, but also with dismantling old ones. Forsyth often begins by developing procedures intended to disrupt automated operations of acting and thinking in an effort to enable, as he says, our ability to, to reconceive and detach ourselves from positions of certainty. In other words, Forsyth wonders what might we need to stop doing or thinking? What might we need to relinquish from our carefully built store of competencies in order to conceive of something new. Testing the limits of working structures currently in use and apprehending alternative orders of coherence, Forsyth changes the subject of choreography from the movement of bodies to the mobilization of intelligence. Forsyth argues that most approaches to dance have overly invested in dance's corporeality, its body, to the extent that they have failed to recognize the intelligence of dance practice. Complying with dominant philosophical tendencies to treat the work of the body as precognitive, he argues the field of dance has perpetuated a false self-conception that has hindered it from clearly stating its own intellectual principles and participating in thoughtful and fruitful exchange with other disciplines. Thinking analytically in the realm of dance, as in any other, involves looking insightfully, hypothesizing about what is perceived, and constructing theories that attempt to assimilate what is known, frame investigations into the unknown, create new correspondences, and spawn new practices. In dance, however, the fact that the work of thought correlates to highly visible, energetic, and most significantly, the ephemeral transformations of the body draws attention to, towards the spectacular, effective and fleeting, leaving sustained practices of knowledge too often unexamined and unspoken. Understanding ballet to be a system like any other that can evolve by periodically taking stock of its standard practices and assumptions, Forsyth's work often counters the traditionally prized set of aesthetic qualities, such as lightness, elevation, extension, harmony, and unified legibility, with others that might at first appear to be less attractive, such as gravity, force, 
involution, counterpoint, and dissonance. His purpose is not simply to be contrarian or modishly deconstructivist. There is a disciplined logic at work here. For Forsyth, the purpose of analyzing the categories of ballet and choreography, investigating how they work, submitting their definitions to translations of various orders and degrees, and seeking what other work might arise from thinking them through differently, has always had to do with engendering, articulating, and perceiving complexity. His work simultaneously demands and produces complex states of thinking, dancing, and seeing. For Dancing Foresight's choreography requires serious thinking, as well as deep physical training and impeccable technique. In order to accomplish neoclassical extension with both exquisite speed and musicality in the vertiginous thrill of exactitude, the dancers must trick their bodies into pushing past the point of equilibrium and control, producing movement with a sense of falling out of form and disappearing. By translating knowledge from one idiom into another and analyzing it according to new criteria, familiar strategies for centering and physically orienting the body in space become transposed in ways that fragment and multiply its directional forces generating new networks of residual connections. This is no less, no less true with the complex geometrical coordination of limbs, sheared at oblique angles, disfocused gaze, and disoriented behavioral states in very different works like the loss of small detail or decreation. The beauty and poignancy of Forsyth's works often has to do with slipping away, failing, or radically changing it can emerge as a shimmering ferocity that launches into appearance only to devolve into nothing, or as a nagging strangeness that suddenly convinces you of its own perfection. It takes the realities of effort seriously. It acknowledges that to work is hard. It takes time and energy. It can be maddening, disruptive, and disorienting. In the rehearsal process, Dancers find better and worse ways to game the system and stumble upon unexpected payoffs. Grace sometimes crystallizes in expert craftsmanship and execution, the simplicity of chance, or even the willful refusal to perpetuate the expected. As I'm getting close to the end right now, I just want to remind you, if you have any questions, um, to start thinking about them and um, We'll take questions soon up at the microphone, so you can be prepared for that. For those who don't already know, this is to be Forsyth's final season as artistic director and choreographer of the Forsyth Company. After 30 years running his own companies in Germany, he has decided to leave and continue his work in new institutional environments. He's recently joined the faculty of the Gloria Kaufman School of Dance at USC, and will be launching a new choreographic institute there. And it was just announced a few weeks ago that he has also accepted the role of associate choreographer at the Paris Opera Ballet, which, as I understand it, involves both choreographing new works for the company, as well as training artists in the newly founded Paris Opera Academy. Perhaps Forsyth's new standing commitments on the West Coast 
will allow for further collaborations with the San Francisco Ballet. I certainly hope so. But to bring us back to what we're here for tonight, I hope you enjoy the performances of all the works in this evening's program. For all the incredible labor of training, thinking, creating, and performing I've been discussing in this lecture, I think you'll find that the vertiginous thrill of exactitude is most importantly 11 minutes of pure spectatorial pleasure. Of all of Forsyth's work, this one perhaps is the one that embraces the aesthetics of classicism most wholeheartedly. You get the whole package, the point shoes, tutus, and balletic steps to classical music danced exquisitely. It's a piece that reminds me of one day in 2003 in rehearsal at Ballet Frankfurt during the creation process of a very different piece called none other than Decreation. The company had become stuck while experimenting with all sorts of far-flung ideas that just weren't working somehow. They were tying themselves up in ropes, scribbling with charcoal sticks on huge sheets of white butcher paper, writing and kicking around pieces of dialogue, writhing in tangles on the floor, etc. And suddenly, a couple of the men started playfully sparring with one another by whipping together all the most academic and pristine ballet moves they had ever danced before landing in Frankfurt. And it was stunning, hysterically funny, and beautiful. And we all laughed with utter delight and amazement. So perhaps if it is about anything, the vertiginous thrill of exactitude is an homage to the sheer love and fun of dancing ballet and what that can still feel like. If anyone has any questions they'd like to ask, I'd be happy to have a short discussion in the time we have remaining. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed the very beginning, so I don't know if you mentioned it, but I remember many, many years ago here seeing uh, New Sleep, mm -hmm. and I loved it. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about that and perhaps why it's never returned since then, because I believe it was like 20 or 30 years ago. Yes, well, that's, that's a good question. I did mention New Sleep at the beginning, um, and actually um, I'm sad to say that it's a piece that I have never seen um, exactly for that reason, that it hasn't been revived. When it was performed here, um, both in San Francisco and in New York, um, it was very well received critically in the newspapers as well as in, by the audience. And um, I don't know. I wish it would come back. Maybe it can. What can you say about the backdrop for Vitage's Thrill of Exactitude? Okay, um, so for those of you who haven't seen images of this or the performance uh, in previous iterations, um, the backdrop uh, has a projection and the projection says sky blue backdrop. <laughs> and as I was talking about at the end of the, of the lecture, um, 
trying to bring in the idea of fun and playfulness and just kind of having a ball. I think that's a bit of a joke. It's a bit, it's, but it's, it's, also, um, it's also a way of asking us, uh, of forcing us really to look at what's on the stage differently. Because we have those words there, we can't just look at the dancing and become completely absorbed in it. We're sort of constantly reminded that the ballet is being addressed to us and that there are multiple ways that it can do that. And there are, and it can, it can make that more complicated than just being direct, just having the blue backdrop there. We can also call attention to that as a sign. I read uh, a review, well, there, there was a, a forum uh, online, and um, people commented on uh, performances that they'd seen. Um, <clears throat> one of them was Artifact Suite. The commenter was uh, criticizing uh, an excellent dancer, um, saying that uh, she wasn't being musical while dancing that. And she said, um, Forsyth is very musical. Now, I enjoy Artifact Suite, but I wouldn't know how to, uh, to watch it and uh, see it as musical. Can you comment on that? Um, that's interesting. I think, and, and in fact, it's a good question apropos of vertiginous thrill of exactitude, because um, one of the things that um, I was observing rehearsals here a few weeks ago, and one of the things that um, the rehearsal masters sort of kept insisting upon is the musicality and how important the musicality is in the dancing and how hard that is. And I think the, the idea of musicality, the concept of musicality is kind of vague and abstract and hard to get a handle on. Um, you know, very generally, you can just say it's a musical sense, but there's, you know, and the, the dancers, all professional dancers are very highly trained in their musical sense. So what would be difficult about finding the right musicality in their, in their dancing? And I think it has to do with um, interpreting the music such that the dancing is not always exactly on the beat, exactly entrained, ex going exactly where the music is suggesting that it's going, that there's a, a more complex relationship between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And so one of the things that Forsyth talks about a lot is the idea of counterpoint. And I think that this is one of the examples of where there's a relationship, a counterpointed relationship between the music doing one thing and the dancing doing something very related, but not exactly the same thing. It all doesn't feed into one perfectly unified thing. 
there's different voices that you can hear or see or hear and see together and they work together and they're coordinated very well but they're not exactly the same thing. Uh, I'd let you just follow up on that and uh, sure. to note that for people who haven't seen Artifact Suite, there's no music in it. <laughs> it's, it sounds, noise. So um, as I said, I enjoy it, but I, I didn't know how to interpret it as music, musicality, the dancing. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, when you think of dancing, um, that has a, has a structure. Choreography is a structure, like music is a structure. And that basically the rules of how choreography works and the way choreography, its grammar, its vocabulary, um, has something to, it, it is musical. It, it, it shares the similar kinds of structures and similar kinds of patterns with music. And so you can have musicality in relationship to music, you can have music, musicality just in music, and you can have, you can have musicality um, in dancing, in movement that doesn't have music, any music at all. It has rhythm, it has um, progression, it, it has texture. Yes. Hi. Can you talk about your work as a dramaturg in the dance world and how it might be similar or different from someone that works in the theater? Yeah, so um, basically in, in the theater, it's maybe a little bit easier to, uh, to have a sense of what a dramaturg does. Basically in, in the theater, a dramaturg is the person who works with the script. Um, they do uh, historical research. Um, they will give talks. They will develop uh, educational programs, um, things of that nature. Now, in, in dance, um, sometimes there's a script, but often it's wordless. And, so, you know, what is, what is the drama? What would a dramaturg be up to? And basically, I think that it's, first of all, the role of the dramaturg is very different depending on who you're the dramaturg for. And my experience with Forsyth was that basically my role was to show up to rehearsal and pay very, very close attention to what was going on, um, how ideas were being communicated, how they were being developed, and basically bring in my associations and contribute whatever it made me think of. And Forseth and I would have conversations about all sorts of things. It, it was never something that was set out in advance, so I would always just show up and I would have things that I was thinking about and they would be working on other things. And somehow in the confluence of those two things, we had a productive conversation. And I think probably one of the reasons why 
it was interesting for him to have me in the room was not that I was an expert in dance, but that I was coming from actually the theater. And I was very interested in the theatricality of what he was doing. And so we had lots of conversations about that. The tutus in Vertiginous are a very unusual design. Has the costume designer ever offered any insight as to why he chose the design that he did? Um, I haven't heard an ex a direct explanation, but I can offer maybe a hypothesis or two. Um, you'll see in Vertiginous that there is a lot of movement um, that is very extended. Is really playing with this space out here, um, which is actually for people who know a lot of Forsyth's other work, there's a lot of movement in here and not out here. And what the, what the tutus do, as you, you saw in the pictures, um, you know, they're really flat and they um, really describe this area that is the extension of the dancer's limbs and calls attention to all of that on the outside. And what the choreography does with that is, like I mentioned before, it's constantly pushing them slightly off balance. They're, they're having to go very far past the, po past the point of, of balance and equilibrium and then recollect themselves and use the momentum of falling to to plunge themselves into the next movement. I mean, this this it's it's not overt. You have to kind of look for it to see it. But um, if you look for it, you can, you can see it. And I, so so I think that that the tutus are a part of that interest in describing what this area is out here and making that very explicit. And also, they're just playful. Any other questions? We have just a minute or two. Okay, well thank you all so very much for coming and I really hope you enjoy tonight's performance.